The Bowery Boys episode 387, Hyde Park, The Roosevelts on the Hudson. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers with part two of our epic road trip to the Hudson Valley. We started our journey last episode with a trek along the Old Croton Aqueduct Trail mm-hmm. in Westchester County. And like Henry Hudson, the namesake of the Hudson River, we are now sailing our half moon further up the <laughs> river uh, for a stop in the mid-Hudson Valley area in the charming town called Hyde Park. In fact, we're in Hyde Park right now. We yes. Have, I don't know if it's a half moon or it's a blue Prius, but we have pulled in to, into Hyde Park's decommissioned train station, but a very notable and historic train station. Yes, the original Hyde Park train station opened here in 1851, although the historic structure standing here today was built in 1914. Of course, it was the train that went into Grand Central and has the same and has the same architects, Warren and Wetmore. We've decided to start our adventure here at the train station because although it is decommissioned for decades this was the primary way of getting to the town of hyde park for most of its residents including some very famous ones that will be the center of our show today that's right here in hyde park we will be heading to a lovely leafy estate called springwood the former home of franklin delano roosevelt's FDR, of course, was the 32nd president of the United States. Uh, He served from 1933 until his death in 1945. He was elected an unprecedented four times. And of his Springwood estate, he said, My heart has always been there. It always will be. Roosevelt was born in Hyde Park, and he spent his childhood here. He lived here with Eleanor after they were married in 1905. He started his political life here, and then he and Eleanor spent a lot of time here during FDR's tenures as the governor of New York and then as president of the United States. And he even hosted kings and queens here. He stayed here while he was rallying the country's spirits during the Great Depression, and he was here during you know, most of America's involvement in World War II. And his house is preserved here today, just as it was in 1945 when he died. So today we'll be visiting the house to gain a better understanding of FDR's whole story and really American history. But also, rather amazingly, while FDR was was serving as president and spending a great deal of time here, he also established what would become the first presidential library in the United States. So we'll be visiting the FDR library today, and we'll be speaking with William Harris, its director. So we've got a busy agenda, but let's situate the town itself, Hyde Park, okay? Okay. So it's on the Hudson River, Mm -hmm. located about 70 miles north of New York City and 70 miles south of Albany in Dutchess County. Now, as late as the 1890s, actually, property here in Hyde Park would be developed by Frederick Vanderbilt, Mm -hmm. the grandson 
of Cornelius Vanderbilt. Now, his house, designed by McKim Meaden White and today known as the Vanderbilt Mansion National Historic Site, is also run by the National Park Service and is open for visits. And yeah. it's over there. Right, just up Route 9 from Springwood, FDR's home. But today we're here for the Roosevelt's. So introduce us to the Roosevelt's. Yes. We'll start with their Dutch ancestor, Claus Martensen van Rosenvelt, who came to New Amsterdam around the year 1650, and developed a farm far outside the city limits of that port town at the area of today's 5th Avenue and 34th Street. So the land today that is underneath the Empire State Building was once owned by an ancestor of Roosevelt's. I'm I'm sure that they wish that they had held on to that. (laughs) I'd appreciate it in value, it's true. Well, the family didn't actually stay there very long. Claus's son, Nicholas, had two sons, Johannes and Jacobus. They would change their name to Roosevelt, Mm -hmm. and then the brothers would settle in two separate places, Johannes in Oyster Bay, Long Island, and Jacobus in Hyde Park. And so throughout our story here, we have two sometimes competing branches of Roosevelt's. Oyster Bay Roosevelt's and Hyde Park Roosevelt's. Mm-hmm. And and last year in our road trip show to Long Island's Gold Coast, we mentioned Sagamore Hill in mm-hmm. Oyster Bay, the home of Theodore Roosevelt. So Teddy then is an Oyster Bay Roosevelt. Yes. But today we're focusing on the Hyde Park Roosevelt's. In fact, let me get this story to James Roosevelt, born in 1828 here in Hyde Park. Now, when his father died in 1863, he became the head of the Hyde Park Roosevelt's. At the time, James was married to a woman named Rebecca Howland, who was the daughter of a steamship mogul. And James and Rebecca had a son who they called Rosie, for Roosevelt. In 1867, James purchased an Italianate mansion here in Hyde Park from a wealthy merchant and renamed the house Springwood. So this would be the new center of life for the Hyde Park Roosevelt's. And it was already quite old. It was Mm -hmm. built in 1800. So then as the Roosevelt family expanded, they'd expand the house. In fact, the house, or really the mansion that we'll be visiting today, is almost unrecognizable Mm -hmm. from the property that James Roosevelt purchased. I mean, whose house doesn't have a few wings added on to it, right? (laughs) We can all relate to the story. Well, His wife, Rebecca, died in 1876, leaving James and his now young adult son, Rosie. Meanwhile, down the river a ways, there was a merchant trader by the name of Warren Delano, who had developed a homestead near the town of Newburgh. Now, James Roosevelt, who was looking for a new wife, became very infatuated with Warren's daughter, Sarah Delano. And despite an age difference of over 25 years, the two married in 1880. Mm -hmm. She would then come to Springwood, of course. and, And in 1882, the couple would produce their one and only child, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So little Franklin here was born in Hyde Park. And and yes, he was the couple's only child. Although I do have to mention that four years before he was born, his half-brother, James Rosie Roosevelt, had married Helen Skirmerhorn Astor, Mrs. Astor's second daughter. 
Are, are we just sneaking asters into every story going forward here? <laughs> Oops, I did it again. No, so I mean, but it's it's relevant. It just it it illustrates how well connected the the Roosevelts were. They were they were really old New mm-hmm. York society. So then, little Franklin, born here in 1882, was quite pampered. Franklin certainly was doted upon. He had a close, loving connection with his mother Sarah and great respect for his father James. Life here at Hyde Park was quite idyllic, but he would soon become aware of the weight of his family's prominence in New York for his fifth cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, had become a national figure. In fact, by the time Franklin turned 19 years old, Theodore Roosevelt was president of the United States. Now, young Franklin was sent off to boarding school at Groton in in Massachusetts, uh, a very elite prep school, all boys, of course, at the time. And then he was off to Harvard, graduating in 1903 and then enrolling in Columbia Law School. And I just like thinking about the fact that here we are standing next to this train station right on the banks of the Hudson. Think of young Franklin going off to school, going north and going south into the city. (laughs) This was just a fact of life for him. And coming back through here, of course, when he was on vacations. That's right, yeah. He was still very close with his mother, Sarah, and she even took a house in Boston to be closer to Franklin while he was studying at Harvard. And in 1905, Franklin married his distant cousin, Eleanor, in New York, with his uncle, the president, giving her away. And where would they live? Would they live here? Well, yeah, this estate here, Springwood, was owned by Sarah, his mother, and they would live with her here, but it was their country estate. Oh, of course, the country estate. (laughs) Yes. Sarah would also have twin townhouses constructed on East 65th Street in New York that were adjoining townhouses, one for them, the new couple, and one for her. They even had sliding pocket doors that could open to transform them into one big happy house. That is quite a wedding gift indeed. (laughs) That's just how they rolled. (laughs) That's just how the pocket doors rolled. But then FDR's career really, really took off. He went from clerking in a New York law firm in 1907 to running for state Senate in 1910, up here and winning and getting reelected. Which, of course, takes him up the Hudson River, up to Albany. That's right, but not for too long, because then President Wilson named him Assistant Secretary of the Navy in 1913, a high-powered position that he would hold through World War I which then brought the family, now with children, down to Washington. But still coming back up here to Hyde Park, of course, for the holidays and the country escapes. And also coming up here to renovate the house. Oh, right, because in 1915, that's when the house is renovated into this, like, colonial-style mansion. It's much larger. But the old house is still under there. Um, And all the while, he was still at the Navy. FDR loved the Navy. He toured the front line in Europe in 1918 during the war, and he was unstoppable. He was tall and handsome. He was very athletic. And just a couple years later, in July 1921, when FDR was visiting a Boy Scout camp in Bear Mountain State Park, it's believed that it was there that he contracted infantile paralysis, polio, which he would be stricken by the next month in August while visiting his family at another home that they owned on Campobello Island in New New Brunswick, Canada. FDR would be paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of his life. 
And Eleanor really was with him through this whole early ordeal, nursing him and caring for him. Yes, and encouraging him to stay active and stay engaged. And he would spend a lot of time here in Hyde Park, regaining strength, learning to walk with his braces and his crutches, one tiny painful step at a time. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to go through the list of like monumental historic things that would happen next in great detail because, well, we have to get up to the house soon and we're actually meeting a guide. Yes. So we're going to let them talk about that. <laughs> but in brief, on the polio front, FDR would establish a therapy center for polio patients in Warm Springs, Georgia in 1927, which he would visit throughout his life and which would help so many other people. And in 1928, he'd be elected governor of New York State and then re-elected in 1930 in the early days of the Depression, where he was already, you know, enacting social programs to help New Yorkers and, and really quickly gaining national prominence. It was inevitable that he would be nominated for president. In 1932, yes, pledging a, quote, New Deal for the American people. It was an extraordinary first hundred days in office, telling Americans at his inauguration that, quote, the only thing to fear is fear itself. And by the way, we have a two-part series on New York and the New Deal. It's uh, number 337 and 338. But it is just so inspiring to consider that he tackled this mammoth task of, you know, fighting fighting a global economic depression and, and rallying American spirits while living with polio. He, he didn't retire and live the life of a country gentleman. No, he, he simply rescued America's economy and put millions <laughs> of people back to work. And along the way, he, he established Social Security and unemployment insurance and the minimum wage and so much more. So it was no surprise that he was re-elected president in 1936. America was still not out of the Depression, but during that term, with war seeming more likely in Europe, King George VI and Queen Elizabeth visited the U.S. in 1939 and stayed here in Hyde Park at Springwood. And he'd be re-elected a third time in 1940, which, of course, at the time was unprecedented. And, and right before the U.S. entered World War II in 1941. And so FDR became a wartime president. And he got re-elected a fourth time in 1944. Still, he would visit here often. His last time at Springwood was in March 1945. And he died in Warm Springs, Georgia, on April 12, 1945. But he would be buried here, in the Rose Garden of Springwood, on April 15, 1945, his body actually arriving in Hyde Park at this train station. One year later, on April 12, 1946, FDR's home open to the public. But the story of Springwood and the entire historic site here at Hyde Park, this isn't just Franklin's story, because we're also spending some time with Eleanor Roosevelt, his wife and political partner, who were married, as you said, in 1905. Now, Eleanor was an Oyster Bay Roosevelt. She was born in New York City in 1884. Her father, Elliot, was a very troubled man, was actually the brother of Theodore Roosevelt. Which then would make Eleanor the niece mm -hmm. of Teddy. But then that also makes her related, of course, 
to Franklin. Right. Fifth cousin once removed. Fifth cousin once removed. That is distant. Distant, but still related. (laughs) Um, So then, you know, Franklin was a Democrat. Theodore was a Republican. Mm -hmm. So Eleanor bridged these two worlds, but, you know, it often meant, at least in her first years of her marriage, that she sometimes felt out of place and perhaps even unwelcomed by Sarah Delano, who now ruled over Springwood. And, you know, in 1915, the the expansion you describe, it was necessary because Franklin and Eleanor had six children, five of whom would survive into adulthood. So Eleanor was quite busy then on the domestic front as her husband's political career was really, was really taking off. Now, in 1918, Eleanor found a stack of love letters to Franklin from her own social secretary, a woman named Lucy Mercer. Franklin and Lucy had carried on quite an affair, it seems. And to really simplify things here, this event really woke Eleanor up. She decided to break out of the constraints of her domestic life here. And throughout the 1920s and 30s, she would become increasingly outspoken and independent. She would more or less lead her own life, parallel life, alongside Franklin with her own friends and companions. Later in the show, we'll actually visit Eleanor's own personal haven here at Hyde Park. And she, of course, then, you know, carried on her own priorities, her own causes, social justice causes, alongside FDR, first at the state governor's mansion, but then, of course, at the White House. So what we will see here today is a place operated by the National Park Service that not only enshrines the Roosevelt family legacy and Franklin's own childhood, it also embodies a bit of that new agreement that new arrangement that Franklin and Eleanor made with each other, at home apart in many ways, a place that celebrates a very extraordinary and in some ways, quote, modern partnership. Well, what are we waiting for? Let's hop in the car. Let's go. And we'll get back to the Roosevelt's and the story of Hyde Park after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, 
began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. This episode of The Bowery Boys is brought to you by the New York Historical Society podcast, For the Ages. The New York Historical Society produces a must-listen-to podcast exploring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein engages the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversations on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped the American story. Professor Frederick Logeval talks about JFK and the thing that surprised him the most. Did JFK actually write Profiles in Courage? You'll find out what Logeval thinks. And he goes into detail about JFK's surprising defeat of Henry Cabot Lodge in 1952. In The Life and Legacy of Justice Ginsburg, Jeffrey Rosen talks about the many conversations he had with her over the years. He discusses the source of her empathy and her incredible attention to detail. Who was the most important person in her life? And what was behind her friendship with Justice Scalia? And you'll be surprised at the source of her exercise routine. Writer Walter Isaacson is interviewed about Jennifer Doudna in The Codebreaker. He'll take you on a fascinating adventure through the world of DNA and RNA and talk about discrimination against women in science and the pros and cons of using CRISPR. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. New episodes every week. So, Greg, we have arrived at the Springwood Estates, which today includes FDR's historic home, officially called the home of Franklin D. Roosevelt National Historic Site, and the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum. And I just have to say that before we interact with anybody, I just wanted to sit down and soak in this extraordinary view that Franklin and the Roosevelts would have seen outside of their window. So we're we're sitting in this lawn next to the house itself, overlooking this extraordinary vista into a valley um, we're perched up on like a hill a cliff or something <laughs> a very steep hill I mean just feet away from the drop you know and this was a view that Roosevelt treasured it's really exciting to think of FDR and Eleanor coming out here you know after an evening meal and just sort of looking out and watching the sunset listening to the birds what a view they all had mm-hmm 
why don't we get up and head into the house? Yes. Uh, I, th- I think we have a special guest awaiting us there. Yes, there is our tour guide, Kevin Oldenburg, a parks ranger with the National Park Service. Let's go meet up with Kevin. Hello, Kevin. How are you? Hi, I'm Kevin. good. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the Bowery Boys. Absolutely. My pleasure. Uh, yeah, so we are standing in front of the house, in, in front of Springwood, on a beautiful spring day. This is a uh, three-story colonial mansion, would you say? Uh, it's a hodgepodge. A hodgepodge that dates back to... Well, the original structure was uh, built during the 18-teens with an addition added by FDR in 1915, which kind of coincides with not only his growing family, but also his growing political career. Mm-hmm. And, of course, then the grounds themselves also grew around that same time. Absolutely, yeah. His father buys this estate in 1867 um, with about 110 acres of land. And then FDR starts getting interested in forestry and starts buying derelict farms and building upon the land here. So when all is said and done, he buys a number of farms and the property extends out three miles from the Hudson River, half a mile wide, and coming in at about 1,600 acres. But FDR himself was born here in this house and would live here throughout his entire life. Yes, he was born in the house uh, January 30th, 1882. He was basically grew up on the property. He was tutored on the estate until the age of 14. Uh, During his presidency, he comes back 135 times and is buried on the property. This is what he considered the center of his universe, uh, the place he would come back to recharge his batteries. So always home. Well, can we head inside? Yes, let's go. Okay, we're walking up the steps here, the stone steps, and Kevin has the official keys to the front door under the portico. Stepping in. Mm. Oh, I smell that historic house. Classic old his- historic house smell. I love it in here. Um, so it, we're in a, a sort of a grand foyer entranceway with several rooms leading out of it. Um, where are we standing? So we're in the entrance hall to the estate where the family would have arrived, where guests would have arrived, and all of the activity was basically central off of this hallway. Well, directly across from us here is the dining room uh, where the family meals would have been held. Large table to the front uh, where the family sat and a small table in the back was the kids' table. And his mother, Sarah, was the one to determine when you had mastered your table manners enough to graduate to the adult table. Uh, May I just point out over here, what is going on in this sort of cabinet with all of these beautiful birds that are on display? Well, it's interesting because at the age of 10 years old, FDR had a real keen interest in in birds and wanted to study them. And, well, he didn't have a smartphone to go to his Merlin app um, or run to Barnes & Noble to pick up a field guide. So they shot and stuffed them, um, which was a common thing to do at that time. So at the age of 10, his father gives him a gun with some rules. And so he could only shoot one male and one female of each species. He, He could never take one during the mating or nesting season. And he had to do his own taxidermy work. And after the first handful of birds, his father discovered that a taxidermist was not going to be his future career path because he wasn't very good at it. Um, And the chemicals that they used, some of them included arsenic, that would make him sick. So they would go to a professional after that. But the whole point of FDR's father, James, making him do the taxidermy work was because he wanted to teach him a lesson. If you're going to start a project, you need to follow through to its completion. 
And boy, did he. I mean, there's what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight shelves of, of birds, all caught by FDR? Yes, and there's more uh, that are not on display. He had about 300 birds, and he could identify every bird that he heard here in Dutchess County by its song. Uh, that actually leads me to the question of, I mean, what particular period is being represented? Is it like one particular period in FDR's life? So the way that we show the house is basically the way it looked the day that he died. Mm-hmm. In 1945. Correct. So let's take a stroll down to the library and, and see a pretty important room here in Roosevelt's home. Okay. We've just walked down a hallway and stepped into a very large uh, library and uh, living room lined with bookshelves and comfy chairs and big Persian rugs, paintings of FDR and ancestors, and of course a wheelchair. So this was his library in his house as opposed to the presidential library that we're going to be heading to next. That's correct. This was part of the addition to the house that was put on in 1915. And this becomes not only a place to work on his collections, there's a desk in the far corner where FDR worked on his stamp collection, which numbered about a million. Uh, But it was also a place where he met with heads of state and world leaders and other foreign dignitaries. And then on one occasion here in June of 1939, President Roosevelt uh, was being visited by King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mum. But Prime Minister of Canada, uh, Mackenzie King, was also here. And after FDR had gone to bed for the evening, King George and Mackenzie King sat in this room. And as they were talking, King George stopped and he turned to Mackenzie King and he said, why don't my ministers talk to me the way the president did tonight? I felt as though my father were giving me his most wise and careful advice. And that's kind of the cool thing about this place. I, I consider it home field advantage for FDR. The guests were comfortable here. It was less formal than the White House. Uh, so you were able to relax and be open. I mean, FDR would show his disability here, which he would never do in public. Mm-hmm. You know, his guests would know about his paralysis and the fact that he sat in a wheelchair. And by doing this, it allowed him to say, there's nothing that I'm hiding, and this is who I am, and it allowed his guests to be open, and I can only imagine some of the conversations that took place because of this, this openness. And you said that that meeting was in 1939. This is just on the brink of war. Yeah, it's an interesting time period because it's June 10th and 11th, 1939. And Neville Chamberlain was the one who sent King George VI and Queen Elizabeth over for this visit. And the whole purpose is to secure the friendship between the nations. I mean, we look at the time frame; it's two and a half months before Hitler's invasion of Poland. And the writing was on the wall. The Germans were up to something and, and they were sent over here to basically secure that friendship and look for support in the impending war. Um, I'd like to get a little sense of like maybe what Hyde Park was like during the war. It's, it sounds like it was a very hectic place, a lot of hustle and bustle, because of course, both Eleanor and, and Franklin built other places as sort of escapes from the house here. So how many other people would have been here? Like, would it have been like an incredibly crowded place? Like, what would it have been like? Well, pre-war, um, there was constant people in and out of the house. Um, but uh, after World War II breaks out, the 240th Military Battalion then sets up shop out front, and they have a full battalion of, of uh, U.S. Army soldiers here on the property. So you can imagine the security that would, would then have been uh, placed around the estate then. So we've talked a little bit about his political career and his, his adult life. We'll step back now and take a look at some of the, the earlier years of, of FDR here at Springwood upstairs. Sounds good. 
So we crossed over the entrance foyer and we're heading up the carpeted staircase to the second floor. And Kevin is pointing at an elevator with a rope coming down. Was, was this a rope propelled elevator? Yes. Uh, so FDR used a hand operated lift to move between floors. Even though electricity was in the house and the technology was there, he never wanted an electric lift, mainly because he was deathly afraid of fire and being a paralyzed man trying to mm. get into an elevator and, and having the power go out because of a fire and being stuck in that was a really big fear of his. So by Using a hand-controlled lift, he had full control. He would also practice sliding down the stairs on his backside. He called it his fire drills. And when you say hand-propelled, like they didn't have an assistant, there, there wasn't somebody else pulling this rope? He would sit in this lift, grab the rope, and hoist himself up. He was described by Jack Dempsey as having the physique of a prize fighter. Mm -hmm. uh, he was six foot two, 190 pounds, and most of his weight was from his waist up. So his bedroom is up here in front of us to the left. Um, I see bedrooms everywhere I look. How many bedrooms are in the house? So there are 10 uh, family or guest bedrooms in the house and a number of servants' bedrooms. Mm. Oh, well, we've stepped up into the central hallway of this upper floor and stepped back into time because we're actually in front of the boyhood room of FDR. So this is where he spent his childhood. It is, yeah. So from the time that he was born until the time that he was married, he lived in this bedroom. Uh, when he got married, he moved out, though, and he went about 15 feet down the hall and over to the <laughs> other side. So it wasn't a very big move. How much time did he really spend throughout his life here in this home, because we know that he also had a home in New York and, and then eventually in Albany and also the White House. This was home for him. This is his favorite. And he would spend as much time as he physically could in this home. And he spent a great deal of time during his presidency here. This, this was just comfort for him. And the bedroom is a, it's a single bed. There's a mirrored dresser. Um, there are interesting things hang on the wall, including a, a picture of George Washington and a nice little desk, a cute little desk with the New York Central schedule peeking out the top of it. Did you say schedule? A schedule and a nice a floral wallpaper. And also an ashtray. <laughs> and a sign for the Harvard Crimson, of which he was the editor. Oh, that's right. Um, I just wanted to, I wanted to ask a little bit about sort of Eleanor's relationship to the house, because obviously she lived here for a very a long time. But, but I know that she didn't feel quite comfortable, and perhaps a lot, some of that has to do with her relationship with her mother-in-law, maybe. How would you describe like, her experiences living here? Well, as soon as FDR dies, uh, he died April 12, 1945. Uh, April 30th, she writes a letter to Harold Ickes, who is Secretary of Interior, asking how quickly the government will take ownership of Springwood and whether the government would pay for heating oil for the upcoming winter. So I think that sums it up. Um, she, she never felt comfortable here. And I, I don't think it had anything to do with Sarah. I think it had, uh, it was her mother-in-law who owned this house, who ran this house, who paid for everything in this house, who made the rules. Even after Sarah died in September of 1941, FDR continued to refer to this house as my mother's house mm -hmm. and wouldn't let Eleanor make changes. So for her, this was never home. The room right across the hallway here is one of the guest rooms. This was a guest room that was used by King George VI uh, and Winston Churchill, uh, although not at the same time. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm bummed. Uh, um, 
but that just really underscores that in a way this house served as a white house in a sense that like international dignitaries were frequently seen here and were frequently hosted here so that's you know that's another burden on a house and a household staff to have all these you know incredibly important political figures through here Oh, absolutely. In fact, when the King and Queen of England were here in June of 39, they had to bring in staff from the White House to accommodate the influx of people here. Mm. So right across from the the uh, boyhood room and, and down about 15 feet is the chintz room, and we're taking a look in right now. And uh, this was the room that Queen Elizabeth stayed, the Queen Mum stayed when she visited here. So we're passing another small guest room, making our way down the hallway. And so we've arrived now at what's called the Blue Room, but this is the room that Franklin Roosevelt was born on January 30th, 1882, in this bed, on that mattress. It is all original. Wow. But really, this is what makes... I think this whole house extraordinary is that this is a place where he was born, and it is a place where he lived, and of course... It is the place where he's buried, you know, out in the Rose Garden. And that's very unusual for a presidential home in the United States. That's because it just doesn't happen that way. I mean, from his birth room, you can look and see his burial spot, which is only about 200 yards away. And I think it, what's amazing is from birth to burial is, is only 200 yards apart. But you know, imagine the millions of miles in between that he traveled. Mm-hmm. The amazing thing is Sarah knew that this house would be turned over to the National Park Service before she died. Uh, FDR made plans on it in 1939. So she requested that when she died, the furniture that's in this room, which happened to be moved to her new bedroom around the corner, uh, she requested it be brought back to this bedroom. So all of the guests that came to see this house would see this room the way it looked the day that FDR was born. Mm-hmm. But FDR did not continue when he'd come back. He certainly wouldn't stay in his childhood bedroom. That's correct, because his oldest son would have been living in it at the time. And so he moved into the chintz room after they got married, which was 1905. And then 10 years later, the addition was added, which gave a whole new master suite. So he continued his journey moving down the hall uh, around the corner to his new bedroom. Well, let's check it out. And we've moved into FDR's corner bedroom suite. This bedroom was part of the addition that was added in 1915, which gives a wonderful view over the Hudson River Valley towards the Hudson River. And at the time, you could actually see what is now the walkway over the Hudson and the, uh, uh, the Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, Bridge, which used to be the Mid-Hudson Bridge. And as an adult, as president, this is the bedroom that he would use? Correct. Uh, and even as president of the United States, if we look to the side of the headboard, there's a phone right next to the headboard. Mm. And if he was to pick that up, somebody in the White House would pick up on the other end. So he was still able to run this country from Hyde Park um, while he was visiting here. And, and again, he spent a vast amount of time here during his presidency. What was his day like here? Did he have a morning routine? Not really. Um, he would read papers as they would come in and, and just prepare for the day and any briefings that he got um, and then entertain, uh, whether it be heads of state, world leaders or Hyde Park neighbors. I mean, he was a Hyde Park neighbor to everybody here. It's it's kind of fascinating to hear stories. Um, my grandparents lived down by the train station in Hyde Park and my aunts and uncles would recall when FDR would drive by, he would actually stop and chat with them. I mean, he was a neighbor. He was just a guy about town. Absolutely. And this is FDR's bedroom. This was not also Eleanor's bedroom. 
Well, technically it was uh, up until the time that he was uh, stricken with polio in 1921. And at that point, he would have needed to be turned several times during the night. And he had a male valet to have done that. So Eleanor moved over to a small sitting room next door to this uh, so that she wasn't seen in her night clothes. But there's also another little room just off the way that is um, a sort of a sitting room dressing room. It is. And there's a small bathroom off of this closet. And what I find fascinating about the clothes in here are these are clothes that FDR handpicked to be on display. These are the clothes that he wanted you to see because he knew you were coming to visit. He made plans on it back in 1939 uh, that this would be part of the National Park Service. So as we look in the closet, we see one of his naval capes, uh, which is reminiscent of the one that you would have seen him wearing at Yalta. Uh, But above that on the shelf, you'll see one of his campaign caps and uh, also a top hat that he wore to inaugurations. That like adds another layer that's very meta that FDR actually sort of curated the house and the collection that we would be walking through. I mean, I'm, that's in- extraordinary. Well, look what he did with his library. He knew his importance and wanted to make sure that it was shown correctly. Well, I love that he specifically chose that beautiful purple dinner jacket, evening jacket, because he knew we were all going to come through. And this was how he wanted to present himself. And I think that's fabulous. He had flair. <laughs> okay, so we just snuck back down to the, uh, to the foyer. Oh, I love the telephone. Look at that hand crank. Ooh, passing by a butler's pantry. So we're in the servants' quarters? We're technically in the servants' quarters, but FDR had an office and, and his uh, assistant would have had the, uh, uh, an office right across the way from him. So we just stepped into a kitchen, uh, uh, yellow walls, pots hanging from the center of the room, porcelain double sink. I mean, bare basics. It's plain. You know, when, when we think about, say, Gilded Age dining, and you think about fine French cooking served with pomp and, you know, flair, was that the style here at the Roosevelt's dinner table? It was definitely more plain than, than what you would have found at uh, some of the Gilded Age estates. And would they have used a lot of food that they grew themselves or perhaps from the local farmers in the region? Were they locavores? <laughs> Uh, They had uh, some livestock on the property here, uh, but the vast majority of farming on this estate was tree farming, Uh, FDR having planted half a million trees on this estate. Half a million trees. And to pull back for a second, so FDR died in 1945, was buried here on the property in the Rose Garden. At what point did this become property of the U.S. government? Well, the the wheels were put in motion very quickly after his death. And by November of 1945, all of the paperwork had been signed, sealed, and delivered. And this was part of the National Park Service. It was at that point that we took over and began prepping this house uh, for a public opening, which happened uh, a year to the day after his death. On April 12, 1946, under the portico out front, there was a podium set up where President Harry Truman spoke. Eleanor Roosevelt relinquished this to the American people. Secretary of Interior Julius Julius A. Krug accepts this on behalf of the American people. And Marian Anderson sings the national anthem. And the doors are finally open to the public for the first time. And the first public day, 5,000 people came through the house to view this place. Wow. And by this point, then where had Eleanor moved? 
She, by that point, had gone over to Valkill and established residence over there in full time, uh, but occasionally was seen back over here at Springwood, uh, you know, jumping into a tour. And you can only imagine paying your 25 cents for your, your house tour ticket at that point and finding out your guide is Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, <laughs> you think you got your money's worth. Although she would also keep an apartment in New York. She, yes, it's actually where she died on East 65th Street. In the old house. In the old house, which is, um, it's now owned by Hunter College. And so if listeners are coming up to, um, to the FDR Historic Home and Library, how often do you give tours? Do they need to reserve in advance? Can you just walk in? How does it work? Currently, we're uh, doing all walk-in only. Uh, but if you go to nps.gov slash H-O-F-R, uh, it'll give you all the information you need to have an incredible visit here in Hyde Park. That's H-O-F-R, House of Franklin Roosevelt. That's correct. Well, Kevin Oldenburg, thank you so much for showing us around the home of Franklin Roosevelt National Historic Site. It's been a great pleasure. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the wonderful afternoon. Well, it's my pleasure and uh, happy to have you here. Now, it might sound like we're in some sort of aviary. We are (laughs) surrounded by so many beautiful birds right now. But in fact, we are at lovely Val Kill, a place that was all Eleanor Roosevelt. So the big house where we were just at, that was Sarah's. But here in that stone cottage and then behind that at Valkill Cottage, this was Eleanor's retreat. Yeah, she wrote that, quote, the cottage was mine and I felt freer there than in the big house. Uh, We're two miles away from that big house, Springwood Estate, and we are surrounded by trees, uh, forest behind us, a lot of of water. The Valkill Pond flows next to us and around us. Uh, We just walked over a little pedestrian bridge to get here. So how did all this come to be? Well, we're sitting here on land that was purchased by FDR in 1911. He had many of these trees planted. And the family would take walks and picnic here. Uh, the land is called Fallkill, named for um, a nearby stream. And when did Eleanor decide that she wanted to build a retreat out here? Well, when Franklin was diagnosed with polio, Eleanor took a more active role in Democratic politics on his behalf. And she became very close to New York Democratic committee leaders Nancy Cook and Marion Dickerman. Uh, They became political mentors to her and extremely close. And Eleanor asked Franklin if they could build a cottage here for the three of them to use. I guess we could say they had a very modern arrangement, and it was obviously something that worked out for the both of them. And, you know, it's inspiring, really. FDR even helped design the building that we're sitting next to, Stone Cottage. It's a very pretty and somewhat understated two-story cottage. And, you know, I mean... We're surrounded by such tranquil beauty, but this wasn't just a place for relaxation. They came out here and discussed politics and social justice causes, writing, different kinds of things. Yeah, one of the things that they discussed was that rural farmers were going out of business and leaving this area for the big city. And it's actually something that was a top concern of FDRs. So they created... In a barn behind the stone cottage here, the Valkill Furniture Cottage Industry to train farm workers in furniture making. 
they literally created a cottage industry. <laughs> and this wasn't like assemble it at home kind of stuff. This was really fine furniture making. In fact, the beds we saw up at Springwood right. um, were made here. Exactly. Yeah, the, the furniture factory lasted until 1936. It ultimately succumbed to the Depression. And then Eleanor transformed the old factory into this large 20-room house called Valkyll Cottage. She would use it on and off until Franklin's death in 1945, at which point it would become her main home in Hyde Park. And, and really, she would divide her time for the rest of her life between this cottage and her place in New York City. Yeah, and if you study Eleanor's life, especially, you know, after her husband dies, you know that she doesn't just retire. Like she's Mm-mm. not she's not up here doing crossword puzzles. No, well, maybe sometimes. <laughs> maybe but sometimes, but I'm she sure is... she was great at them. <laughs> She'd be great at Wordle, but she <laughs> did. She was so active. She served as a delegate to help organize the United Nations, where she was the only female delegate. By the way. She chaired the UN Human Rights Commission and drafted its Declaration on Human Rights. And she was still hosting foreign leaders out here at this time, right? Uh, I mean, yes, out here, yes. And, you know, not to mention, I think she was also writing a syndicated newspaper column called My Day. Yes, she wrote the column for more than 25 years. And here she also hosted all kinds of school groups. Mm. She wrote a Valkyl, quote... My picnic ground is a large one, and in summers it is used perhaps once or twice a week for some school or social group. And if I'm there, I always try to stop by to speak to them for a few minutes. There's a pool where they can swim, a tennis court, a stream full of water lilies, and a boat, and plenty of room for walking over the countryside. I drive my own car at Hyde Park, sometimes meet guests at the railroad station five miles from my cottage, and do so much of my own shopping at roadside stands. During the summer months, I keep the deep freeze well stocked and always try to be prepared to feed any number up to 20, most of them unexpected, for luncheon. Wow, should we go up and check to see if that deep freeze is still stocked? Maybe we can get in. (laughs) If only. (laughs) Actually, I have a better idea. It's so beautiful. Uh, Let's go on a little trail, a little walk up through a forest, up through the hill to another special cottage called Top Cottage. Let's go. There it is. Well, Tom, I just I wanted to mention as we wander through this beautiful forest up this hill here, mm-hmm. um, that I think that we could refer to Franklin Delano Roosevelt as the king of the forest. Oh. For he was really, really into forestry. He grew over half a million trees here at Hyde Park. He saw them as ecologically essential and a basic aesthetic necessary for people to live. For instance, the National Park Service, which operates Hyde Park today, was completely upgraded by the New Deal. And in 1933, he created the Civilian Conservation Corps, which put thousands of people to work in conservation projects, planting over three billion trees across the country. Three billion. Yeah, maybe we're walking past some of them right now as we arrive (laughs) (laughs) at the end of this trail here with Top Cottage in front of us. Uh, Let's go to the porch. Tom, I'm, I'm freaking out a little bit because we, I am right now sitting 
on the porch of Top Cottage. Yes, you are. Okay, so Eleanor had a haven of her own with mm-hmm. Valkyll, which we were just at. So it's not surprising that Franklin would want one of his own. Here atop Duchess Hill, where he used to play as a kid. It's appropriately called Top Cottage because it's one of the highest points in all of Duchess County. It is. We're literally looking out over treetops. I mean, for miles. And this is obviously quite different, you know, than Eleanor's Valkyl. It has a much more rustic design. The house is its interesting. It's made of field stone in the Dutch colonial revival style. Honestly, you can imagine that it's been standing here for centuries, mm-hmm. right? It has that feel to it. But in fact, it was built from 1938 to 1939. And believe it or not, it was actually designed by FDR himself making it one of the very few structures ever designed by an American president. And certainly not the last structure that he would design. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And by the late 1930s, as the country was heading out of a Great Depression and into another world war, all aspects of his life were becoming consumed by the presidency. He needed a place to clear his head. Um, As he put it, he needed, quote, a small place to escape the mob. Unquote. Mm. Uh, we're not so far from Springwood or from town, really, but it does feel remote here. It's not a Lincoln log cabin, but it Mm-mm. does feel like something timeless. You can see Roosevelt's touch here in how the house is actually oriented. As we saw, Springwood was certainly wheelchair accessible in some respects, but it did not allow him complete freedom. It was an old house, and, and there were other people living there. Mm-hmm. But this, like this place, was his alone. And it was designed in a way that was, you know, as we might say, was accessible. So we're sitting on the, on the porch over on the <laughs> yes, left side. Yes, because now it's starting. There's a, there's a light rain coming down right yeah, now. Yeah, so now we, we have to sit on the porch with, uh, with Roosevelt. But over on the left side is an earthen ramp, which is kind of an mm. unusual for a house of this nature, there are no stairs to get in the building. Inside is a flat, even floor, and all the surfaces are built a little lower so, so he could access them from his chair. The windows are also lower so that he had clear views of the landscape. So this place was built specifically for him to allow him to escape. I mean, even if he was too powerful mm-hmm. and, and famous to really find complete seclusion, this was pretty close. Yeah. Perhaps this is a little contradictory, but it also served as a place of entertaining, of important international dignitaries, actually. Kevin told us back at Springwood that that world leaders would sleep in the bedrooms at Springwood. Well, they would also be invited out here to Top Cottage where they would be entertained, Mm. you know, right here where we're sitting, you know, possibly one of the most famous porches in American history. Well, that's quite a claim. I mean, this is a large, beautiful porch it's with roomy. an amazing, unobstructed view over the treetops. I mean, this this porch has room for like two or three barbecues. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened here? Well, it's perhaps best known for one particular gathering on June 11th, 1939. And the house wasn't even finished at that time. As you mentioned, the Roosevelts hosted a picnic here for King George and Queen Elizabeth Over 150 people were in attendance of this particular picnic, but there were special tables up here on the porch for the king and queen. 
So wait, where you and I are sitting right now, the king and queen of England <laughs> sat here on this porch. Uh huh. And what were they served? Well, you know, there was a, a lot of things that day: strawberry shortcake and beer, cranberry jelly. But of course, the one the thing <laughs> shortcake and beer. Okay. <laughs> but the but the most notable thing that day it was believe it or not they were served hot dogs. Hmm. Roosevelt fed the king and queen of England hot dogs here on this board. Did they like them? Did they even know what they were? Actually, King George loved hot dogs. He actually he ate two of them. Um, the queen didn't like them. The event is actually sometimes called the Hot Dog Summit or the Hot Dog Picnic mm-hmm. um, and was actually critically important to international affairs because... When did I say this was? June of 1939. And just a few months later, on September 3rd of 1939, Great Britain declared war on Germany. And while the United States would not yet jump into the war until 1941, this summit here did cement the bond between these two nations at a very critical point. And this would continue to be a meeting site during World War II. In fact, Winston Churchill came out here on a few occasions. And when Churchill would come here, or other top brass of the military, mm-hmm. did they sleep here in this cottage? No, it was it was just day meetings. In fact, FDR never slept here, despite it having two bedrooms. Over the years, it just became more difficult for him physically, and Springwood would just prove to be a more restful place to sleep overnight. Although he had once envisioned living here permanently in old age, you know, when he was out of office. But he was rarely here by the time of his fourth term in 1944. And then by that point, his health was deteriorating rapidly. When FDR died in 1945, however, his son Elliot and his wife actually lived here. So, so then people did sleep out here and live here on a regular basis. The house passed through several hands over the decades before the National Park Service officially took control in 2001 and then opened it you know, to the public as a public site. And here we are. So then if Springwood represents his biography and Top Cottage represents his dreams, then the FDR Presidential Library and Museum represents his legacy. Why don't we head there now? And now we have the pleasure of sitting down with William Harris, who's the acting director of the FDR Presidential Library and Museum. Uh, We're sitting down inside the Welcome Center. Um, Thank you for welcoming us, Bill. Oh, no, we're so glad you're here today. It's a beautiful day to be up here, too. We call it Roosevelt weather. (laughs) Well, we we thought we'd sit for a little fireside chat with you right now (laughs) in the library and discuss the history of the library. In fact, why why don't we begin with the basics? Well, the president had a real view of history, and he had a view of his place in history. And also uh, the presidential records and the documentation of his administration uh, was very important to him and of his role. He was also a great collector of things, ship models, stamps. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which we saw over, over the uh, house. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hudson Valley uh, documents of memorabilia. So he convened a body of historians in the mid-30s to think about what he should do with these materials and how he should treat them. So out of that came an idea for a what became this presidential library. And what's kind of fascinating about it is 
all presidential materials, actually up through Jimmy Carter, most people don't know this, were their personal property. Mm. And so prior to uh, FDR, the papers and records of presidents, they'd just been some burned, destroyed, dispersed. Some had been collected by Library of Congress. Wait, just to make sure I understand, prior to FDR, when a president left office, they could just take all their papers mm-hmm. with them. Actually, all the way to Jimmy Carter, that's the case. Um, hmm. And the papers belonged to them. They were considered personal property. There was no statutory governance of those materials. Even state papers, the issues of, of the state. That is correct. Wow. I know, it's surprising, <laughs> isn't it? So um, It seems almost irresponsible. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, the for President Nixon's situation caused a change ah, yes. in the way um, the, the nation approached presidential record keeping. Mm. So FDR, you, you can imagine, the government had, uh, during the New Deal, just become much larger. And we're talking White House records, not um, necessarily all the agencies, you know. Mm-hmm. But the, um, the oversight and the administration of that had just grown. So... He came up with the idea, essentially, of privately funding a library building and then giving it to the federal government, specifically the National Archives, which was brand new at the time, for operation by the National Archives, and then donating those historical materials to that library. And so that's how we came into being. In uh, 1939, ground was broken here. He, he actually... While he's still president. While he's still president. He, you know, the two-term tradition, even then, he saw himself leaving office, you know, in January of 41. He'd be able to be here. It's built on 16 acres, carved out of his family estate here. And he saw himself working here in his post-presidency, uh, with his, working with his papers and his collections. So ground was broken in 39. Uh, it was actually handed over to the National Archives in 1940, But they determined at that point not to open it to the public. France had just fallen in uh, June of uh, 1940. He was considering running for a third term. It had not been announced. So you don't really want to dedicate a presidential library, even though this was the first one to be Mm -hmm. operated by NARA, if you're thinking about continuing as president. So um, we operated for a year. And we opened to the public in 1941. So while he would be working in his office here in the building, just down the hall, there'd be members of the public mm-hmm. touring the museum. Amazing. Yeah, it's really striking. Uh, and of course, the war started shortly thereafter, about five months after we opened to the public. And so throughout the war, uh, we were open to the public throughout the war. And uh, the president, again, would be visiting here. And uh, there was a military detachment out at our gatehouse. And to protect the president, there was a series of crash wires and electronic eyes that helped <laughs> see mm. around the property. He loved this place, and he tried to be here just as much as he could. He was so deeply involved, he designed the boxes that held the archival records. He picked out the carpet for the director's office. He, he, he did, was so involved. I, I saw a sketch he did of the building itself. That's right. Did he, he design had, the building? <laughs> he actually drew out what he wanted and then fancied himself an architect, much to the architect's chagrin. But, <laughs> yes. but, but he See did. Top Cottage. Yeah. He uh-huh. had a vision. And you can see it throughout the region. The use of the stonework on the library is the same on local and regional post offices that mm-hmm. he had a hand in as well. Now, can I take a step back and sure. just sort of define 
presidential papers. Mm -hmm. What do we mean when we say presidential papers? And does it just mean papers? Like, can it be objects? Can it be audio recordings in the case of FDR? It can be a whole bunch of things. In in the Roosevelt era, presidential papers, uh, in many ways, much like today, include those materials that he saw and worked with, those materials that his senior staff saw and worked with, those materials of state involving uh, foreign policy, and in Roosevelt's case, the conduct of the war. So very high and important, and, uh, and also the working papers of uh, his White House staff. In addition to that, there were photographs. There was no White House photographer at the time, as, as has come later. Also, at most presidential libraries, but certainly at this one, are his personal papers as well, so that the library includes those, uh, as well as Mrs. Roosevelt's, the First Lady's papers are also here and from her active career, and then materials from his associates. So uh, other people who worked in the administration, his chief of staff, th- those kinds of folks. It's just a real rich array. And then you've got objects, three-dimensional um, objects, artifacts. And so the, the library opened in 1941, Although he had not yet had a chance to go through and organize his papers, because of course he was he was just in his third term. So, what were people seeing when they came in in those early years before the papers were organized? What was on display? Well, yes, that's right. They weren't conducting research here. The papers weren't available uh, for um, the general public. They were seeing an exhibit that largely consisted of his personal collections, as well as some materials that had been gifted to him by both the American people or by other world leaders. So you would see his ship model collection, which is on exhibit today, mm-hmm. uh, which was extensive, of oh, goodness, as well as there's um, a certain art, his naval print collection mm-hmm. would have been on exhibit, as well as what they called oddities, which may just be interesting things people had given him. Uh, his cabinet of curiosities. <laughs> yeah, that's essentially in many ways. And when you look at photographs from the time, you just see these large glass cases, which he helped design too, of course. Of course. <laughs> uh, holding materials in the central core of our exhibit, which was uh, part of the original uh, original layout. There's just something remarkable about the idea of this man personally designing these things to preserve his own legacy. He's doing it in the middle of his creating that legacy. And it is the creation of his legacy, but it's also the documentation of the era. Um, what's interesting, though, is the fact that... Um, he died, you know, and uh, just into his fourth term. So he he didn't have much of a hand in crafting what that would look like uh, down the road and what ultimately the exhibit would become in terms of uh, an analysis, a really critical analysis of, of his administration. You mentioned that after Eleanor died in 1962, her papers would also be mm-hmm. become the property of the library. That's uh, right. And, and later there would actually be an Eleanor Roosevelt wing added in a, in a renovation to the library. Um, how has the library's mission changed or its purpose changed over the decades? Well, I think on, on a really basic core level, it's still the same. It is a repository of these authentic, these materials of unquestioned provenance that allow for the study of the president, uh, the first lady, the administration. The exhibit aspect has evolved to be more than about just what his collections were and a very sort of uncritical analysis of what those those are, to become much more a story of the American experience and their relationship to that and how they I- impacted it. So it has evolved a great deal from an exhibit standpoint. The research mission was intended when he was alive, but 
you know, what's fascinating to think about is if he had lived what our collection might have looked like as he sort of sorted mm-hmm. through his papers, mm-hmm. considered what he thought his legacy might be through those archival documents, as opposed to most of them becoming ultimately available without that sort of editorial input. Mm-hmm. So, Right, because he couldn't be really, I don't know, critical. He couldn't curate that's what was correct. kept. That's set, correct. It, it all got kept. That's correct. And so that's to the benefit of history, actually. Mm-hmm. And it set a model in a very good way um, for the future. Are, are there one or two items in the collection that maybe are your particular favorite? It's funny. I get this question fairly regularly, and our previous director did too. And on any given day, it can evolve or change. But just yesterday, actually, there's a a scrapbook, and I'm generally, as my archival background, despise scrapbooks because they're just impossible to preserve and serve. That's the technique. <laughs> Nobody needs it. Don't scrapbook. It's a that's archival do, disc there. Do not scrapbook. That's okay. my big, it's, you know, it's just a nightmare. Um, we just lost that scrapbooking sponsor, Greg. I'm so sorry. <laughs> At the uh, end of the day, this scrapbook were materials that were either discarded by the president or just given to Missy Lahand, who was mm-hmm. his private secretary, his gatekeeper. And she kept them. So within this odd, unusual kind of scrapbook are um, 10-page Christmas lists that he kept. And he's like the one yesterday I was looking at. Eleanor Roosevelt was number 27 on the list. Um, and she was being given a hooked rug, which is really okay. lovely. Very it's very nice. nice. And uh, lots of liquor was being given. He gave his doctor a cigarette holder, which we just found rather fascinating since he was encouraging him to smoke less. Uh, and uh, also within that, though, uh, book is a tally sheet from the 1932 Democratic Convention where he's sitting with his aides and they're keeping track of how many delegates he has. And then on the final page of it, he's written a note to Missy saying, this is the moment. This is the moment when we did it. Uh, And so, you know, mixed in this scrapbook are just little joke notes that weren't intended to ever be kept and were the kind of thing that probably wouldn't have been kept had the collection, shall we say, been curated more um, Mm -hmm. after Mm -hmm. he left office. But because they are kept, we're really given insight into who he was. And FDR actually worked in this building, correct? Like, worked in the library building itself. That's correct. He, his office is perfectly preserved as it was when he worked worked in it. He, he greeted heads of state in that office. Actually, Mrs. Roosevelt greeted heads of state in the office, including Khrushchev and Nehru and Indira Gandhi uh, on their visit. But the president, absolutely, he worked in the library while we were open to the public and visitors were in the museum. And does the library also do outreach in schools or bring in school groups? Absolutely. As we emerged from the pandemic, especially, we had an incredibly active education program, and we still did during the pandemic. It was just all virtual. Our goal is to have students on site. We do have a very active education program, and we engage students from the very um, young ages all the way up through high school and college students as well, as well as adult learners. And the idea is to give them experience and current connections so they can understand about uh, presidential decision-making and critical thinking and decision-making. It is um, a really important part of what we do. If you were planning a day for a visitor, one day out here in Hyde Park to have the whole FDR experience, 
like what would like your order of visitation? Would they start at the library? Should they end at the library? Um, this is uh, this comes up frequently. And actually, what's interesting is because uh, we are co-located with the National Park Service, who operate the home of FDR and uh, Valkill, where Mrs. Roosevelt lived, and as well as the Vanderbilt Mansion. And so. We are. We have no timed tours or guided tours. That, so sometimes we say, book your tour to the house because those are guided tours. You get a nice overview of his life in the Hudson Valley. You get to see where he lived and where he grew up. And the museum gives you a really historical, critical analysis that you can experience on your own time going through it. So frequently we say, well, if you can do the house first, that's great, and then come do the museum. However, they work interchangeably. Mm-hmm. But I would also say, Leave time for Val Kill, definitely, because Mrs. Roosevelt, that was such an important place to her. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to experience being in the area, in the region, in the Hudson Valley, FDR loved the Hudson Valley and his home. And you just get a sense of it when you're driving around. He would get in his Ford and he would take off. I'm looking out right now and I see our front hayfield mm-hmm. and he would he didn't know what a road was and he didn't care about a speed limit and he would just cruise around the countryside and you just can feel why he loved this place so much. Mm-hmm. So Bill Harris, thank you very much for inviting us inside, sitting down with us inside the library and walking us through the story of the FDR library. Well, thank you very much. Uh, really appreciate it. Glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, we're on our way out of town, and we thought that we would stop for a late afternoon sweet treat here on, <laughs> with us, Route 9? Uh, 9G, in fact. Yes, we've stopped, we've stopped at Nana's Ice Cream and Grill. I'm eating something that has a gigantic Nutter <laughs> Butter on top of it, slathered <laughs> in some kind of um, a syrup of some kind, and just sort of sitting here reflecting the legacy of the Roosevelts while um, we indulge in these treats. But it's been a wonderful day in Hyde Park. We're soaking it in. Before we head out of town, we want to thank you so much for coming along and invite you to head over to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, to see photos from our journey around Hyde Park up here and also more pictures of everything that we've talked about in today's show. Special thanks to Kevin Oldenburg from the National Park Service and William Harris from the FDR Library Museum for spending some time with us today. And thanks also to Clifford Laub from the library for helping make the arrangements for today's visit. And thank you to our patrons for getting us to Hyde Park. You not only voted on this as your top choice for today's show when we asked for your feedback on which Hudson Valley spots to visit, but your support helped literally get our train tickets, batteries for the recording devices, um, and even our Sundays here at Nana's. <laughs> <laughs> the Nutter Butters. A big thanks to new patrons, Fred R. from Manhattan, Michael A. from Queens, New York, and additional sponsors, Wolfgang E., Taylor A., Purse C., Jimmy C., James P., Kenneth L., Eliza G., and Mario and Linda. Thank you for supporting the Bowery Boys podcast on patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Be sure to check out our sister show, The Gilded Gentleman, where host Carl Raymond explores topics from the Gilded Age in New York, Edwardian London, and Belle Epoque Paris every other week. You'll love his newest episode that's coming out next week about some of the peculiar dining habits 
of New Yorkers in the late 19th century. It involves terrapin and fine dining on horseback. So check that out, The Gilded Gentleman. And we also invite you to join us and join our fabulous tour guides. Now back in the streets over at BoweryBoysWalks.com. We have exciting new tours that have just started up, including the new Robert Moses versus Jane Jacobs tour and a very new Gilded Age New York tour. Book your spot today at BoweryBoysWalks.com. Thank you for listening to part two of our road trip to the Hudson Valley. Where will our adventure take us next? The only thing I can say is it's north of here. Oh, the intrigue. (laughs) So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. 